Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Psalm 98 and also be ready to go over to 1 John chapter 4. I appreciate all the um, words from God's Word earlier that just remind us that in and of ourselves, uh, we can't do it. We have to have the Lord do it. If we trust in the power of our horses or the number of our horses, it's a fool's trust, but we trust in the Lord. And so even as now we go to his word, let's ask for his help, knowing that apart from him, we can do nothing. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We ask that they would both now be operative. Help us to see clearly, help us to be changed more and more by the transforming work of your Spirit in us. Father, help us to indeed today see the joy that you bring to the world through Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. With Christmas Day being tomorrow, it seems like we're we're ramping up to something, but today we're actually concluding something. We're concluding our four-week series to unpack and expose the biblical truth found in this hymn, Joy to the World, using the hymn as a point of departure into the scriptures of Psalm 98 and beyond. Uh, the, the hymn's central theme, as we've been seeing, is that there is great joy, great joy in the Lord's coming, in his rule, in his blessing, and then today in his favor. When Isaac Watts uh, wrote this hymn uh, from Psalm 98, it was in two hymns. Um, We only sing the last part of it as joy to the world, but it was also, as you see in your insert, uh, called praise for the gospel, followed by the Messiah's coming and kingdom. He wrote a lot of hymns, somewhere between 600 and 750 hymns. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, With the criticism he received, he was being criticized for writing contemporary Christian music. Remember that title of his hymnal, this collection of hymns, in particular from the Psalms in 1719, the Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. Not a paraphrase, but an imitation. He was looking at this Psalm through the lens of, of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You see, in writing this hymn, Watts transformed this old Jewish psalm of praise for a historic deliverance into a Christian song of rejoicing for the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone. When we started off this series, I asked the question, when is a Christmas carol not a Christmas carol? It's here, with joy to the world, originally focused on the second advent, the return of Jesus Christ in glory and in judgment to make all things right. But of course, Watts is looking now at both the, new te- uh, the, the first advent and the second advent. Listen once again to Psalm 98, the basis for joy to the world. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. 
He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This entire hymn, the hymn that we opened our worship service with is jubilant, is it not? And last week, I believe, The triumphant note we looked at uh, is found in verse 3. His blessings flow far as the curse is found. And yet, the hymn concludes and leaves us with a focus on the wonders of his love. From Luke 2, we may remember this. The angel announced good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. And continued with peace among those with whom he is pleased, or as another translation says it, peace on whom his favor rests. Today, joy in his favor. There's great joy, I believe, because of the wonders of his love. Now, first, we're going to take a look at the wonders, and then we'll consider his love. And wonders of his love. Rob, I don't know if you saw my notes, but you previewed something I was going to say. Have we lost our sense of wonder? I have at times. Why? Because it's hard. You've got to slow down. You've got to be quiet. You've got to reflect. It takes time. When were you last overcome by a sense of wonder? I mean, take a moment. When were you overcome, overwhelmed with a sense of wonder? Well, to help us, here's a few definitions. A cause of astonishment or admiration. A miracle. Or the quality of amazed admiration. But this is my favorite definition that I found. Rapt attention and astonishment at something awesomely mysterious or new to one's experience. So when was the last time you were overcome by a sense of wonder? Most of us have heard of the seven wonders of the world. Um, Various lists have been compiled from the ancient to the present time, to catalog the world's most spectacular natural wonders and man-made structures. There was a book, it was a guidebook in the ancient world called The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. It's that first known list of this remarkable creations of classical antiquity. And it included only works located around the Mediterranean Sea. And seven wonders were were thought to... um, to represent perfection. And among those seven wonders, here are just five. The Great Pyramid of Giza, 
the hanging gardens of Babylon, the statue of Zeus at Olympus, the lighthouse at Alexandria, and the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Wonders. Wonders of his love. Before we get into looking at these wonders of his love in particular, I think it's important to make a few comments just about his love. I've heard many people say love is confusing, right? As you're growing older and you're thinking about marriage and love is confusing. Relationships are confusing. Well, people are also confused about God's love. On the one hand, in a world with suffering, violence, so much damage, so many broken lives. I mean, look at your own life, your family, the neighborhood, the community, the nation, the world. Suffering. Things aren't working right. Broken lives, broken hearts. How can there be a God who loves? People may ask. If God loves, why is this happening? But on the other hand, if there's one thing that our world thinks it knows about God, if our world believes in God at all, is that he's a loving God. God is love. Watts is helping us because he's going to draw our attention at the end of the hymn to the wonders of his love, the wonders of God's love. And among the many wonders of God's love, we're going to take a look at just three. And I believe those three are found here in our New Testament text, 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Remember, Watts is using a New Testament lens. There's a theme of Psalm 98, joy because of God's salvation, joy because of God's love. So we're going to take a look at the wonder of undeserved love, the wonder of incarnate love, and finally the wonder of transforming love. So let's look first at the wonder of undeserved love. We've all asked the question and we've all had to answer the question, right? Why do you love me? Why do you love me? An initial answer that's often given is proves to be in one sense an unsatisfactory answer, right? Why do you love me? Because I do. Why do you love me? Because I love you. Look with me at 1 John 4, verse 7. Love is from God. Love is from God. God is love. His essence is love. The relationship that he has between himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one of love. Love is from God. And look at verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. In other words, God is not loving us because we love him. He's not doing it in response to our love. No, scripture says not that we love, have loved God, but that he loved us. You heard it in Deuteronomy 7. I love you because I love you. You heard it from 1 Chronicles 17. David's, who am I 
Who is my family that you have bestowed this kindness, this mercy, this favor on me? Because the Lord loves you is that answer in Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 10, the Lord set his heart in love and chose. It's his sovereign choice. He set his affection on them because he loved them. And that is he loved them because he loved them. If you you wonder at that, that he loves us because he loves us. I mean, we live in a performance-driven culture, right? You're only going to be loved if you perform, if you're beautiful, if you're successful, if you've got some benefit to give to somebody else. No, this is astonishing. According to the Bible, the fact is that God loves us because he loves us. Think about man's sin and rebellion. I love you anyway, not because you are lovable, but because I'm that kind of God. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, these words, Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Did you hear that? God is rich in mercy. And he, and because of the great love with which he loved us. I mean, Paul is saying he loves us with a great love. It's it's the verb and the object. It's astonishing. We were the objects of his wrath. Now we're the objects of his love. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Why do you love me? Because I do. That's initially unsatisfying answer, but... It really can't be improved, can it? It it still stands. It's accurate. God loves his people because he does. Our text here captures the biblical reality that God's love for us is undeserved. Where have we heard that people deserve the love of God? It's, It's not in there. But... It's so hard because we think that I've got to perform. I've got to be successful. I've got to do it right in order to receive love from one another. God says, I love you because I love you. God's love for us is undeserved, but his love for us is also incarnate. It's become invisible. Excuse me. It's become visible. It's become love in the flesh that we see in the person and work of Jesus. There's a few movies out there that have a lot of lines that can be quoted. And one of those movies, I believe, is Forrest Gump. And he says this at one point in the movie, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. We all think we know what love is. But look at 1 John 4 again. And this is love. 
And this is love, verse 10. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love. Look at the verses uh, 9 and 10. Or 9, right before 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Made manifest. That God sent his son made manifest it's obvious it's evident it's clear it's visible it's noticeable it's plain it's observable and why was the love of god made manifest we see that so that we might live through him that we might live through him john 3:16 for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. How? How can we live? It's because Jesus is, and we heard it read earlier, the propitiation for our sins. Not just turned away or deflected, but exhausted. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. Propitiation is a fairly uncommon word, but it's a important world word it's a sacrifice that bears god's wrath and turns it to favor god's love was manifest made manifest through his son jesus said as we read in john 10 i have come that you might have life how does this life attained the father gives his son for us god gives himself Remember, Paul in Galatians says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see the relationship between love and giving of self? Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that somebody lays down his life for his friends. D.A. Carson in his book, The um, doctrine of the love of God says this for the burden of the new testament is that Jesus dies a substitutionary death he does not deserve to die but when God sent him to do his father's will to go to the cross and die it was with a purpose to die our death so that we do not have to die so that we may have eternal life remember what we've been seeing in Luke the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. He saves through his obedient life and he saves through his sacrificial death. He saves others at the cost of his life, his life and death of love. In Luke, we, we have been seeing the compassion of Jesus. You could also at times translate that as the love of Jesus that led him to substitute himself for sinners. The wonder of undeserved love, the wonder of incarnate love. But let's look now at the wonder of transforming love. Where do you see that? Look at the context. Look at the beginning and end of this section in 1 John 4. At the beginning in verse 7, at the end in verse 12, is a call to love one another. John is writing to the church. John is writing to God's people. It's a call 
to love one another in the church, in the body of Christ, in the fellowship of believers. Let us love one another. We also ought to love one another. It sounds like John is issuing a command. How do you get someone to love one another? Do you just employ Nike's advertising slogan, just do it? I mean, really, love one another? I hope you're like me and know how hard at times that is. So I had to laugh when I saw this poster uh, in the Demotivator series. You know, you go into doctor's offices, dental offices, real estates, and you see teamwork and, you know, pictures of beautiful scenes and um, uh, hard work and perseverance and all this stuff. Well, I like this Demotivator poster labeled Arrogance. And it says this, the best leaders inspire by example. When that is not an option, brute intimidation works pretty well too. Verses 9 and 10 provide a model of and a motivation for love. Who God is and what he has done for us in his son is what ultimately constrains obedience from the child of God. It's what distinguishes evangelical obedience from a mere legal obedience. Because we can all, if the consequences are high enough and the punishment is severe enough, we can can be forced to do almost anything, right? Can you really be forced to love someone? Or is it an internal constraint. Paul writes the church in Corinth, for the love of Christ controls us. He could also, it could be translated, for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ constrains us. When I was thinking about this, I was remembering an indelible grace hymn written by William Cooper entitled, Love constraining to obedience. Hear that title again. Love constraining to obedience. And this is what Cooper writes. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Love constraining to obedience. Do you want someone to change? Are you at the moment frustrated by somebody else? How how can you get them to change? Is somebody frustrated at you? How can they get you to change? How do you get someone to change? You love them. You see, my friends, God does that with us. Are we not called to do that with one another. And a big way to love someone is to pray for them. I remember reading A Praying Life years ago and Paul Miller said something along these lines. uh, How would you love someone without prayer? Are there any difficult relationships you've got in your life? Are, Are you praying for them? 
not praying that they'll necessarily change so that they can be like you want them to be, but are you praying for them? Are you loving them through prayer? I mean, here in the church, we're a community of love, as Rob remarked earlier, we're a testimony to the world. They'll know that we are Christians by our love for one another. There's an incarnation of love, God in the flesh, in Jesus, but there's also an incarnation of love in us. The wonder of transforming love. It is love unto change. It is grace unto change. You see, God in his love and grace meets us where he finds us, but he doesn't leave us there. How does verse four start? He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. He rules the world with truth and grace the truth of his love and the grace or the favor of his love. That's how he rules. The wonders of his love, not seven wonders, but we've looked at three wonders. Undeserved love, incarnate love, and transforming love. Psalm 98 became two hymns, praise for the gospel and the Messiah's coming and kingdom. The gospel, the good news of God's work of salvation. And we see that in verses one through three of Psalm 98. Salvation is there three times, salvation in Christ. And I want you to look back at Psalm 98 and notice these words. In verse three, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. Why? Why does he love us? He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's God's covenant love. It's his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever Love. When the hymn concludes, Watts wants us to remember the wonders of his love, the wonders of his love, the wonders, wonders of his love. When man comes up with a list of the wonders of the world, they're all man-made, aren't they? the World Trade Center, the internet, AI. They're all man-made. But when the Bible speaks of wonders, especially the wonders of his love, they're not man-made. They're God-made. You see, the Christian life is indeed the only one that can be called without cynicism and with all sincerity a wonderful life. Did any of you all watch that movie just recently? A Wonderful Life? It's a great movie. But the Christian life is a wonder-filled life. 
It's a wonder-filled life because it's full of the wonder of God's love toward sinners, God's love toward you and me that are found in the person and work of Jesus. Watts wanted us to remember the wonders of his love. I believe God wants us to remember today and every day the wonders of his love. May we slow down. May we even stop. May we consider the wonderful love that God has for his people in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for this exposition of Psalm 98 that we get through the hymn, Joy to the World. And Father, we thank you that indeed in the midst of sorrow and sadness and difficulty, our own sin and others, that there is joy. There is a joy that's given to us by Jesus. Father, may we believe the truth when Jesus tells his disciples that he wants his joy to be in them and for their joy to be full. So Father, be pleased to help us grow in our understanding and amazement of the unending, undying, unbreakable love that you have for us in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.